Hello and welcome to episode 11 of Hallowed Ground, the Sports Museum podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Stockman. I wanted to remind everyone that if you have any feedback about the podcast or want to suggest museums or halls of fame you would like to hear from, you can email me at hallowedgroundpod at gmail.com. Also, be sure to tell the sports fans in your life about Hallowed Ground. I'm so thankful for all your support so far. Today I'm speaking to Dan Wallach, Executive Director of the Shoeless Joe Jackson Museum and Baseball Library in Greenville, South Carolina. The museum is in the house Joe and his wife Katie lived in from 1941 until he passed away in 1951. Katie continued living in the house until her passing. We just passed the 100-year anniversary of the Black Sox scandal and its subsequent fallout, plus I recorded this conversation with Dan just before Joe's birthday, July 16th. For those unfamiliar with the Black Sox scandal, I'll link to more information in this episode's show notes. After my conversation with Dan, I'll be talking about Charles Comiskey during this episode's overtime segment. Stay tuned after our interview for information on the man who owned the White Sox during Joe Jackson's career. I hope you enjoy episode 11 of Hallowed Ground. I have Dan Wallach on the podcast today, executive director of the Shoeless Joe Jackson Museum and Baseball Library in Greenville, South Carolina. Dan, how are you? Great. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you. Shoeless Joe Jackson, I've heard of and being a, a baseball fan, I grew up hearing about his hitting prowess and um, he's been featured in some movies and we'll talk about that a little bit too. But can we kind of talk about your background first and how you found your way to the Shoeless Joe Museum? Yeah, um, born and raised in Chicago. Um, 12, 13 years ago, my parents retired from Chicago and moved to the Greenville area in South Carolina. So I went out to visit them for the first time and it was right after the museum had opened. So we went to go visit, you know, we're a baseball history family. We love the White Sox and uh, we just fell in love. It happened to be the week leading up to the first ever vintage baseball game between the Ty Cobb Museum and the Shoeless Joe Jackson Museum. And so they asked me if I wanted to play since I was going to be in town. I said yes. And it was just an awesome event. There were descendants who uh, either played in or were attending the game from both Ty Cobb and Joe Jackson. There were historians and researchers and experts from all over the country who were at that event. So it was just like my people, you know, it, it felt like it was where I was supposed to be. And every year I made that my excuse to go visit my parents again in South Carolina. We based it around the, you know, the trip around that. So I have one of three or four people who have played in every single game since 2009 when we first started playing. We just started getting more and more involved with the museum, just donating and supporting and volunteering when we could. And then a couple of years ago, the original curator retired. She was about 80 years old at the time. And the board of directors asked me if I wanted to come take over. They'd known me for over a decade at that point. So I said, yes, and here I am. Yeah, that sounds pretty cool. I didn't know uh, your parents had moved to Greenville because on the biography of you on the museum's website, it talked about how you'd been in the memorabilia industry and always been in a, a baseball family, it sounds like. So I think that's really awesome. It's probably a dream job to operate the Shoeless Joe Jackson Museum, especially being a White Sox fan and having that history too. So that's uh, that's pretty neat for you. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we're starting to get more and more recognition all over the place. Just today, we had a visitor come in who was a former White Sox employee. He was wearing his 2005 World Series ring. You, you never know who's going to walk in the doors. So, you know, that's the type of stuff that's going to start happening now that we're reopened. You know, we were closed for 19 months doing construction and, and having the you know coronavirus shut down. So, now that we're back open, we're open all the time and there have been lots of surprises. So it's been cool. That's awesome. Dan and I first connected over Twitter. I've seen you guys have a following on Twitter and a, a big presence there. And you were doing a 
like a contest for a free membership. And so I retweeted it and it was like, you surpassed your goal like right away. So like it's getting a lot of traction, all stars and people with world series rings coming by. That's pretty sweet for the museum to gain a following. Yeah. It's been um, beyond our wildest expectations. We never thought that, you know, the, the tweet you're talking about, I posted it, you know, with about a week leading up to Joe's birthday, you know, Joe's birthday is July 16th. And so I was like, all right, you know, we're a few hundred away from 6,000 followers with a week to go. Let's see if we can get it. And within nine hours of posting that tweet, it had been seen by 250,000 people, (laughs) that kind of stuff. When I started this account, that was, there was just no way that that was part of my expectation that I'd have a tweet that was seen by that many people that quickly. I mean, we're very proud of what we've built here. And we knew that once the right people saw it, they were going to fall in love with it, but I didn't think it would be this quickly. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been really exciting and, and pretty overwhelming to be honest with you that whole day. I mean, I, there were hundreds of likes and retweets and shares and all that kind of stuff. So my phone was just blowing up with notifications. I literally couldn't keep up, um, but that's a good thing. I mean, those are good problems they have, right? Definitely. Can we talk about Joe Jackson, the man himself? Can you give like a short biography? I'm sure you know so many facts about him, but I think it's uh, important that listeners who maybe aren't familiar with Shoeless Joe and his life, uh, maybe hear a little bit from an expert. So like, just tell us about Shoeless Joe Jackson. Uh, Joe was born July 16th, 1887 here in, in Pickens County, South Carolina. It's about 20 minutes away from Greenville. His family moved to Greenville when he was pretty young and he started working at Pelzer Mill, which is a cotton mill here in Greenville in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And uh, what really put Greenville on the map around that time was its textile industry. So there were all these cotton mills all over town. Within a three mile radius, there were 18 different cotton mills at Greenville's peak. So tons of cotton production going on at the time. A lot of people know the story of Joe being illiterate, never knowing how to read or write, but don't really know why. And that's because he started working at Elzer Mill uh, when he was six years old. So he never went to school for a day in his life, never learned how to read or write because he was always working. A lo- way that these mills would keep their morale up because you know the work was pretty dangerous and, and dirty and didn't pay very well. The mill owners created baseball teams. And since there were so many so close to each other, they all played each other and created a league. It was called the Textile League. So that league started in the 1880s, went all the way through the 1950s. That's where Joe got to start playing baseball. You know, the people who played on those teams were generally the biggest, strongest, most athletic people who worked at the mill, usually 18 or 34 year old men. But when Joe was 13 years old, he was invited to play with that men's team one of the best players in the league. So that's how he got to start playing ball. Hopped around from textile mill, you know, textile league team basically started at Brandon Mill uh, as a 13 year old, played for Victor Mill in 1907. And then in 1908, he was playing for a minor league team here in town called the Greenville Spinners. And that's where he got discovered by a scout named Al Mall, who was a scout for the Philadelphia Athletics and Connie Mack. So that's where he got discovered. Uh, Al Mall came to Greenville actually scouting another guy named Hyder Barr because Connie Mack wanted all his players to be college educated. Well, Joe didn't know how to read or write, but one of his teammates did. His name was Hyder Barr. He was a graduate of Davidson College. So the scout was sent down to check out Hyder Barr. And when he got to Greenville, he saw Joe Jackson and he said, Joe Jackson's the sweetest hitter I've ever seen in my life. So uh, Connie Mack said, sign them both. And they did. So Joe made his major league debut August 25th, 1908 at Columbia Park in Philadelphia. and 
the rest as they see is history. Yeah. Wow. I was going to ask you about the textile league. I'd never heard of that throughout reading a bunch of baseball history books growing up. I'd never heard of that league, but it, it was there forever. It sounds like all the way through the fifties. So it was just made up of the, the mill workers up until the fifties or were there other, other folks that came to play? So if you've ever seen the Simpsons episode where Montgomery Burns is trying to have like the softball team that's so great. It was the same kind of premise where like you had to work for the mill to be on the mill baseball team. But a lot of players in the league didn't really work for the mill. They just, you know, they were kind of hired guns. So Joe definitely started as an employee of the mill, but the better he got, the the easier his jobs must have gotten. You know, that's that's kind of the going thought. But we have a list of 82 players who played in the textile league, who at one point played in the major league. So this was not just some mom and pop league full of garbage players. This was legitimate talent. And that's why scouts were coming to Greenville because they knew not just the minor league teams, but that textile league had legitimate talent in it. And, um, you know, we've, we've got the names to prove it. Yeah, that's awesome. And it's cool that you all have a, a record of who played in the majors from that league. I think that's important to preserve even the folks that were from that area that maybe aren't as famous as Joe Jackson, because it sounds like there's a lot of rich baseball history in Greenville. So maybe we could talk about that a little bit, because I know the museum is right across the street from the current single A team of the Red Sox in that stadium. But what else um, baseball history wise has come out of a small town in South Carolina? Well, yeah, that's something that we're kind of proud of with the museum is that our first room on the tour to Greenville baseball history. You know, a lot of people who are from the area don't necessarily even know about the Textile League, but I can pretty much guarantee you that if you're from Greenville, you have a relative or a very close family friend who has a relative who played in the Textile League. I mean, it was everybody was was a part of that league, just hundreds and hundreds of players over the years. So that's a part of the history that we're trying to preserve and, and teach people about. You know, like you said, you'd never even heard of it. I hadn't either before I moved down here. Once I got started getting more and more involved with the museum, I just became fascinated with it. And I'm still learning. I mean, by no means do I consider myself an expert on the textile league yet, but hopefully one day. But that's, you know, part of the part of the joy of working at a place like this is that you get shared those stories. You know, people come in and they'll say, oh, yeah, my grandfather played on such and such a team or you know, we had somebody who donated one of their grandfather's gloves and he was a teammate of Joe's, you know? So like, wow, things like that happen. And it's, you'd, you'd never get that at another baseball museum. The textile league itself is specific to the Greenville area and to South Carolina, but there were leagues like this all over the country. That's why I'm, you know, baseball is pastime. People played baseball and there were, you know, coal miners leagues in Pennsylvania, and there were, you know, other, other all sorts of leagues like that all over the country. So the textile league is unique to Greenville, but leagues like this were all over the place. That's awesome. Let's get back to uh, Joe's career. So he starts with the Philadelphia A's. And I don't know if a lot of people know that because he played for Connie Mack and those teams were very good the the start of the 20th century. And then he moves to the White Sox. And then probably how most people know him is from the Black Sox scandal and being banned from baseball and all of that. So can you talk about how he moved from Philadelphia to Chicago and then um, get into the, the Black Sox scandal in 1919? Well, there was actually one stop in between. Uh, he was traded from Philadelphia to Cleveland. He played for the Cleveland Naps from 1910 to 1915. Okay. So, yeah, he was a great player. His, his first true season, his rookie year, was 1911. So he had played five games at the end of the 08 season. 
then five games at the end of the 09 season, and then 20 games at the end of the 1910 season. Those 20 games, if he would have had enough at-bats to qualify, he would have won the batting title that year for Cleveland in the, in the entire major leagues. But since he only played 20 games, Ty Cobb won the title. Well, his next season as a rookie, he hit 408 and set the all-time record for highest batting average ever by a rookie playing for the Cleveland Naps. But he didn't win the batting title that year either because Ty Cobb hit 420. So, um, you know, Joe was this superstar player in Cleveland. He was, you know, played right field for them. That's when his glove became known as the place where triples go to die. I mean, he was this super athletic kid who had a great arm. Uh, in 1917, he won a trophy for throwing a ball 396 feet, eight inches on the fly. Wow. At an all-star event at Fenway Park. So he was super proud of that trophy, one of his prized possessions till the day he died because it proved to him and to everybody else that he had the best arm in baseball. So, you know, his, his glove was known as the place where triples go to die because he could throw anybody out and he was athletic enough and agile enough and had good enough instincts that any ball that was hit to right field, you were not going to end up on third base. He was going to gun you down or or at least hold you to two. So he was one of the baseball's first five tool players. I mean, people weren't really hitting for power power uh, because it was the dead ball era, but Joe had over 300 total bases a handful of times and was a, a legitimate superstar. He had lots of stolen bases. I mean, like, again, the five tools, you know, hit for power, hit for average, run, field, throw. Joe could do all those things. One of the first guys in baseball history to, to be a true five-tool player. So when he was acquired by the White Sox, it was the biggest deal in the history of the sport. Charles Comiskey sent his secretary, Harry Grabener to Cleveland with a blank check and said, don't come back without Joe Jackson. So he came back with him. It was 83 games into the 1915 season. They traded him to Chicago and, you know, Comiskey was trying to build a dynasty just like Connie Mack had done in Philadelphia. And it paid off. The the moves he had been making worked. He acquired Eddie Collins after the 1914 season, Joe Jackson about eight months later. And by 1917, they were the champions of the world. So, you know, a lot of people don't realize that he played in another World Series other than 1919. They think that that's the only time he made it. His team lost on purpose, and that's all he ever did. But it's that's not true. I mean, he was a great player. Yeah, and I didn't realize the five-tool aspect because we think of him as one of the best hitters who ever lived, and he has a lifetime batting average way over 300. But, yeah, that five-tool aspect and defense was hard back then, I'm sure, because their gloves were not the $300 models that you'll see today. And so it's kind of awesome that he was – as good of a fielder as he was and a good athlete and had the rocket arm and throwing almost 400 feet on the fly. So I think that's important to highlight too, is that he wasn't just a good hitter. He was Mr. Do everything. So Cleveland played at league park. If you take a look at the dimensions of league park, the right field fence was super close. So they made it 40 feet tall and that made playing right field in Cleveland, which is what Joe played really unpredictable because almost every ball that was put in the air to right field would hit the fence. And so there were crazy caroms or, you know, balls would not hit true off the wall. And it was an adventure out there. You know, visiting players did not like playing right field at league park, but Joe figured it out and you know had a knack for it. So yeah, he was uh, something special. League park. You mentioned that that's, it's kind of funny because my first episode of the podcast was with Ricardo from the baseball heritage museum, which is in the old ticket office at league park. So that's kind of a throwback to uh, Joe Jackson's second team up in Cleveland. So that's that's pretty awesome. Let's talk about the Black Sox scandal now, because I think that's what Joe is most famous for or infamous for. But he has 
maybe kind of a different public perception based on some of the movies that have come out of since that time about the Black Sox scandal. But there's also been a lot of public research and what the museum is trying to do is maybe change that public perception. So can you talk about what actually happened and what Joe's role actually was and then maybe how some of the movies like Eight Men Out or Field of Dreams have kind of clouded that from the public view? Yeah, so we've uh, we've done a lot of work with Sabre, the Society for American Baseball Research, and one of their projects that they released in 2019 was started by a man named Gene Carney almost 20 years earlier. It was called the Eight Myths Out Project, and the goal of that project was to debunk the top eight myths associated with the Black Sox scandal. And some of these things, I mean, we've been hearing for literally 100 years, since 1921, when the trial was going on, and it was the strategy of the defense lawyers to make Charles Comiskey out like he was a cheapskate. And the whole, the whole reason his team had thrown the World Series is because he wasn't paying them what they were worth, and you know they needed to figure out a way to feed their families. Well, the strategy worked because it got the jury to acquit the players and find them not guilty, but it wasn't true. We've uncovered the contract cards that the players signed in 1919 that says exactly how much they made. And it turns out Comiskey had the second highest payroll in all of baseball. You know, Eddie Collins, his second baseman, was the highest paid second baseman in the sport. And behind Ty Cobb was the second highest player, period. Eddie Seacott, their best starting pitcher, next to Walter Johnson, who a lot of people think might be the best pitcher who's ever lived. Eddie Seacott was the second highest paid pitcher. Ray Schalk, their catcher, was the highest paid catcher. So Comiskey paid his players and paid them well compared to the other owners at the time. If you want to make the argument that all players were underpaid, okay. But Comiskey didn't underpay his players compared to anybody else. In fact, quite the opposite. That's one of the myths that we've, we've tried to really reinforce the idea that like what you've been told for all these years is not quite what really was the story. Eight Men Out, the movie, came out in 1988. It was based on a book that was written by Elliot Asnoff in 1963. And when he wrote that book, he was really the first person to do like an in-depth, deep dive, you know, story about this scandal. So his publisher and his agent told him, you know, from this point forward, if anybody wants to write about the Black Sox scandal, they're going to reference your book. So if you put things in your book that are made up and we see them pop up in somebody else's research later on, we know that they plagiarized you and we can sue them. So he actively made things up in his story to be able to suit people later on. And one of the most egregious examples of that is the character Harry F., who before game eight of the World Series allegedly goes up to Lefty Williams, the starting pitcher of the White Sox, and you know, threatens his family if he doesn't lose the game. That never happened. Uh, there's, there's almost no evidence of that happening. So that was uh, you know, another thing that people come in and they're like, oh, well, the players had to do it. They were you know, being threatened. It's like... Nah, not really. That's that's not quite what happened. It was the players themselves who had come up with this idea that they could throw the World Series and they wanted to approach the gamblers and say, you know, everybody in the world is betting on us to win this series. If you guys bet on the other team, you know, you're going to get incredible odds because nobody thinks that they're going to win. So we can guarantee that you win those bets and clean up because we're going to lose on purpose. It was the players who approached the gamblers, not the other way around. Most people think that the gamblers took advantage of these naive players who didn't know any better. The players knew exactly what they were doing. Gambling was just a part of baseball back then. 1871, there was a major league team in Louisville that had eight guys busted for gambling. And for the 50 years after that, it was just a part of the sport. So that's why the players thought they could get away with this because people had been for years. And, you know, when you're making $4,000 a year, or $6,000 a year, whatever the case may be, and you find out that, hey, if we throw this series, gamblers might give us 10 grand for one series. 
And even if we do get caught, which we're probably not going to, but even if we do, nothing's really going to happen to us. I mean, it's a no brainer. So that's why the, the six guys who are really in on the scandal uh, thought that they, you know, it was a good idea to do this. Obviously the eight men out, there were eight guys banned. I think really only six people were really truly involved in that scandal. And Buck Weaver and Joe Jackson were kind of, uh, you know, casualties of that effort. But yeah, it's a, it's a tragic tale that Joe got caught up in it. People ask, well, all right, well, you look at his stats. He had 12 hits in that World Series, the single highest total of hits in a single World Series in history up to that point. That record stood for almost 50 years before it was tied. He hit the only home run for either team in that series. He didn't commit any errors in the field, and he threw five base runners out. So, I mean, if that's a guy who's trying to lose, imagine how good he must have been when he was trying to win. But if people are see those stats and they're like, okay, why did he get banned? And that's kind of where the details get a little bit murky. So we're not sure exactly when this happened. It was either after game four or at the end of the series, but gamblers gave Lefty Williams, who was a starting pitcher on the Black Sox, you know, one of the eight men out who was in on it. They gave him $10,000. They said, give five of this to Joe. Well, it turns out Lefty Williams and Joe were best friends on the team. They were roommates. So Lefty puts five grand under Joe's pillow. And now Joe's got an envelope full of $5,000 in his hands that came directly from gamblers for his team to purposely lose a World Series that they purposely lost. So that doesn't look great. I, I grant you that. But Joe tried to go back to Charles Kaminsky after the series was over and say, hey, I tried to warn you about this before the series started. You didn't take me seriously. Here's the proof that something happened. And Harry Grameter, you know, the, the secretary of the White Sox, would not let Joe into Comiskey's office. Uh, they knew that once he walked through those doors, there goes their plausible deni deniability that you know, they didn't know anything was going on. And so I don't think the speculation is that Comiskey was in on it, but that he certainly knew something was happening and just didn't do anything to stop it and uh, you know, didn't want to report it because it was going to implicate him in some way. Yeah. So after Joe and the rest of the Black Sox were banned, what happened in the immediate aftermath to Joe? Did he go back to Greenville immediately? Because I know he ends up there and the museum is housed in his actual house that he lived in in the 40s. But in those couple decades, what was he what was he doing after his baseball career? Well, first of all, a lot of people think that the team was banned immediately after the 1990 World Series. And that's not what happened. Uh, they played almost the entire 1920s. Baseball had this gambling problem. You know, it was, it was just rampant in the sport. And so baseball hires Commissioner Kennesaw Mountain Landis to be their first commissioner. And he was tasked with cleaning up the sport. You know, the American public were losing their faith in baseball as a, a, you know, a legitimate entity. They figured, well, it's becoming like wrestling is, where if the outcomes are predetermined, why would we pay ticket prices to go watch these games played in person? We could just read in the paper the next day what happened. So Landis knew he had a tall order ahead of him. And it wasn't until there's about a week left to go in the 1920 season that he found out that the Phillies and the Cubs had fixed the game. So he called all those guys into his office and was like, guys, what are we doing here? And that's when they told him about the White Sox who threw the World Series the year before. And that's when he called everybody in his office and, and suspended them for the rest of the 1920 season. But the White Sox were at half game back from going to their third World Series in four years with a week to play. They went in 1917 and won. 1918 is a, a war-shortened season, so that season doesn't really count for a lot of people. Um, you know, a lot of teams were sending their best players to the war effort. Like Joe spent all that year almost in Wilmington, Delaware, painting ships for the Navy. So a lot of people don't really count 1918 as a full season. But 1919, they go to the World Series again and then lose on purpose. And 1920, 
with a week left to play, they're a half game back from going to their third in four years. And Joe is hitting 382 at that point in the season, has his career high in home runs. And that's when Landis finds out that the Sox have thrown the 1919 World Series and they don't play another game. So that's when, you know, the trial happens in 21. Before the trial starts, Landis says, if you guys are found not, found not guilty, I'll let you all back in baseball. They're found not guilty, and Landis goes back on his word. So that's when his, his major league career ends. But he laid low for a couple of years. 1922, he pops up playing under an assumed name in uh, New Jersey. And if you've ever seen the last scene of Eight Men Out, it kind of gives the implication that for years and years and years, Joe played under fake names, and that's how he kept his career going forever. It's not quite what happened. We think there's about a dozen instances of Joe playing under a fake name, but he was so famous and had such an iconic swing that you know, when people saw him hit this long home run and during a game, they'd be like, oh, that's, this is Joe Jackson. So that didn't last super long. And then he started kind of promoting his name because you know, if he's getting a cut of the gate, if he puts in the newspaper that you know, Joe Jackson is going to be in the town playing against my t- hometown team, there's going to be 5,000 people that show up instead of 500 and he's going to get 10 times the payout. So promoting his name and putting in the paper, we've got a lot of instances in our museum about that. Uh, in 1923, he started playing for this team in America's Georgia. Then 24 and 25, he played in Waycross, Georgia. He's the player manager of those teams all three seasons and all three years. Those teams win the Georgia Little World Series. It's like the Georgia State Championship. He had plenty of baseball left, but it's about this time that Joe and Katie opened some businesses in Savannah, Georgia. They lived in Savannah for years. And those businesses were doing better financially than Joe was traveling around playing these outlaw baseball games. So he kind of stopped. He didn't retire. He just kind of stopped playing ball because he was making more money at the dry cleaning business they had opened. So they're focusing on that business, doing really well. They've got a couple different locations. They've got 20 employees working for them. And Joe's mom gets sick in Greenville in 1932. So they sell those businesses, move back up to Greenville. And the Greenville Spinners, which was the team he was playing for in 1908, where he got discovered by Connie Mack's scout and got the nickname Shoeless Joe. That happened for, you know, in 1908 playing for the Greenville Spinners. They find out he's back in town in August of 1932. And they're like, hey, Joe, as long as you're back, you want to play with the old team? So he says, yes. So he's 45 years old playing again for the Greenville Spinners here in town. And played for even five more years after that. Um, he kind of went back in and out of retirement, played for Pole Mill for a little bit, a couple other you know, local teams. But in 1937, he had a younger brother named Jerry. And Jerry was this great pitcher. Joe said that Jerry was an even better player than he was. And if his last name hadn't have been Jackson after the Black Sox scandal, he definitely would have been a major leaguer. But no team wanted to touch him because he was so closely related. But in 1937, Jerry's playing for Woodside Mill. They're another textile league team here in town. And the Woodside Mill owner asked Joe if he wanted to come out of retirement to be the player manager for his little brother's team. So he says yes. So at the age of 50 in 1937, Joe is still playing textile league ball. So he starts his career at the age of 13 and doesn't stop playing until he's 50. So 37 years this guy played pro ball. I mean, it's insane. He was uh, an otherworldly talent. That's incredible. I think it's it's really important to preserve that because he he touched so many people during his baseball career played with hundreds of teammates, hundreds of, of towns he probably played in, whether it was barnstorming or back in Greenville or in and around that local area. So that's awesome. I didn't really know a lot about his his post-playing career, and then he ends up in Greenville after his mother gets sick, like you said, and then the house that the museum is housed in, that was his house up until his passing, correct? 
So when Joe and Katie moved back up, they opened a barbecue restaurant that was open for a couple of years, I think. And then they got rid of that and opened a liquor store that they ran for the rest of their lives. In 1940, they built the house that our museum is. And then they moved in in 41, lived there until they passed away. Joe did in 1951 and then Katie in 1959. So yeah, they, they lived out the rest of their lives in the building that is now our museum. And we're really excited that that's where our museum is. You know, that's one of our advantages is that we're house that he passed away in um, and, and how it came to be a museum in the first place is 2005, a real estate developer who's from South Carolina knows the story of Joe Jackson and finds out that Joe Jackson's former house is available for sale. Well, he's got the foresight to know that at some point in the future, Greenville is going to expand out that way. Some developer who doesn't know who Joe Jackson is, is going to buy that property, knock the house down and build a condo there. So he's like, I need to save this place. So he does. And then in 2006, he takes the house to the city and says, look, I own Shoeless Joe Jackson's old house. I will move it anywhere in the city. I'll pay for everything. I'll donate it to the city as long as you guys make it a museum. So the city says, all right, well, last year we just built Floor Field, which is the minor league baseball stadium where the Greenville Drive play. They're a minor league affiliate of the Red Sox. There's a property right across the street from there that would be perfect for this baseball museum. Let's put it there. So they do. And they put us right in the center of the property. And they renovated for about a year and a half to get it up to speed. 2008, we opened as a museum. But to get the house from the residential neighborhood where it was to that property, they literally had to cut the house in half and put it on two flatbed trucks and drive it down the street three miles. So we've got pictures in our museum of construction workers sitting on the roof of the house as it's driving down the street because when they get stoplights, it was so tall that they needed to lift the stoplights up so the house could fit under it. Wow. That's you know a, a big part of our history, the move of the building. Then a couple of years ago, Greenville, by this point now, has expanded out to where we are. And another real estate development company wanted to build a luxury apartment complex right across the street from Floor Field. Well, we were right in the center of their property. So they're like, will you guys move again? And we're like, no. It wasn't fun the first time. So they're like, well, all right, well, what if we pay for the move? We'll build you an addition that doubles your size. We'll give you a new roof and a new HVAC. And we'll keep you on the same property. We'll just move you from the center of the property to the corner. We're like, all right, now we're talking. So that's what happened. So we agreed to close up for a few months. We were supposed to be closed for five months. Then 2020 happened and it turned into 19 months. So last year wasn't a great year in our history, but you know, it set us up for the future. And that's where I'm sitting right now, giving this interview is in our edition that has really expanded what we're able to do. I mean, we have so much more space now. The edition is mostly our gift shop, but... We have a lot of displays in here as well, um, specifically with the liquor store. We also have books that were owned and, and written by Gene Carney, who is the researcher I mentioned earlier, who really busted the doors open on the modern Black Sox research as we know it. And we've got a little hitting area where we've got bats from the Louisville Slugger Factory Museum that they made specifically for us that are some of the best bats in baseball history. Everything from you know, the bat that Ty Cobb used to the bat that Babe Ruth used, to Lou Gehrig to Ted Williams, Willie Mays. Ken Griffey Jr., Derek Jeter. So you can see how bats have progressed all throughout history and literally, you know, hold them in your hands and feel them. And then we give you a replica of Joe Jackson's J13 model bat that was 36 inches and 39 ounces with a super thick handle. And when you hold that bat after you held Derek Jeter's bat, it's like, you know, 34 inches, 32 ounces with a thin modern handle. You really feel how, how big and strong Joe must have been. Um, so those are the types of exhibits that, we never had the space to have before. And now that we have this addition, we've got you know, room for all sorts of new merchandise that we've never had available, and all sorts of new exhibits. Uh, we're just, we're really excited about what 
what has happened this past year. And, you know, we've got this bright future that when people walk through our doors, I can't tell you the amount of times people in just in these last three weeks that we've been open, they come in and, you know, say, I was expecting to spend 15 or 20 minutes here, just walk in, walk out and be done. And they are here for over an hour. And, you know, they just have no idea that this is such a, you know, such a story that's part of the Greenville history. And, and, you know, when you come here, we try and teach you about all of baseball history, not just Joe Jackson, but try to give context for why things were happening and when they were happening and you know, the players that, that made these stories possible. Yeah. I wanted to ask about some of the other exhibits because where you're giving the interview, you're right in front of the original doors to his liquor store. Is that correct? Yeah. So we're really happy to own those. We have a photo of Joe standing behind the counter at that liquor store. It's kind of a, a famous photo in terms of Joe Jackson. So it's possible you've seen it before. We blew that photo up life-size, put it on a wall, and uh, I found the exact make and model cash register that Joe has his hand on in that photo behind the counter. It's a cash register from 1938, and I tracked one down. And so we've got a little counter display that's right in front of that big blown-up picture so people can stand behind it and recreate that photo. And um, there's this photo of the front window from Joe's Liquor Store, hand-painted. Not necessarily a logo, but that's essentially what it is. It says Joe Jackson's Liquor Store. And we turn that into t-shirts and shot glasses and whiskey glasses and things like that. So we've got this whole display completely dedicated to Joe's liquor store. And people, you know, when they when they walk in, they see that design and they kind of think that we're making a goof about something. But then as we take them through the tour and teach them that Joe Jackson's liquor store is a huge part of the Greenville community for almost 20 years. You know, people love to hang out there. Men would go there and just talk baseball with Joe. Little kids would show up at the front door and ask Joe if he could, you know, teach them about the sport and he wouldn't let them inside because they were children, but he'd go back and pull a chair out and go sit outside with them outside their front doors and just talk baseball for as long as they wanted. And and we've heard stories that Katie, his wife would open the liquor store on Saturdays because Joe was at the baseball fields teaching the kids how to play. So this is, it's a really big part of who he was and who they were and how they were so financially successful after his career was over. So it's not just some goofy little gimmick. You know, this is a, a big part of his history and we're thrilled to own the actual doors that were you know, the front doors to that liquor store. I think it's awesome that you talk about his whole life, his whole upbringing and then the textile league. You don't just focus on the Black Sox scandal that everybody knows. You try to dispel those myths, but then you also talk about his businesses and his his marriage and all of that. So I think that's that's really pretty cool. And then you have another part of the museum that's a, a baseball library. So can you kind of talk about that and how that component um, is part of the Joe Jackson Museum? And since Joe was illiterate, one of the things that we want to do is to promote literacy. And one of our ways of doing that, got hundreds and hundreds of books in that library that are all baseball related, but we've tried to you know cull the collection down and, and make sure that everything in that library is has some sort of purpose. So, you know, let's say in the years past, there would be like a Joe Morgan autobiography. It's like, technically, is that a baseball book? Yeah, but it doesn't have Joe Jackson. No. So we try to kind of get rid of those books and we donated them or, or we're going to start programs where we, you know, go through it on a more consistent basis and donate or, or you know, have like a lending library, something like that. But you know, our building now is either directly about Joe or about baseball history, or about his contemporaries. So we've got books about Ty Cobb and Babe Ruth and Rogers Hornsby and people like that who played with or against Joe. Because those are stories that are important to tell too. You know, I think one of the reasons why people know Joe's name today is because he's not in the Hall of Fame. 
Well, guys like Rogers Hornsby or Tris Speaker, or Sam Crawford, or you know people like that who are in the Hall of Fame, you know, they got their their justification at the end of their career. Now it's a hundred years later, and people have completely forgotten about those guys. I mean, those are some of the first superstars in baseball history. Napoleon Lajoie, you know, they named an entire after the Cleveland Naps were named after Napoleon Lajoie. And you know, Joe played five years. People don't even know who this guy is. And he's one of the superstars of baseball history. And Mm -hmm. those are the types of stories that we're trying to tell with our museum and tours that we give here too. It's not just about Joe. Of course, he's the focus for the Joe Jackson Museum. But we try and tell stories that give context for what Joe's career really meant and, and why it was so important at the time. And I love that Greenville, there's a lot of other Joe Jackson related things in the town. There's a statue and he's buried in the town. And can you kind of touch on those and what people can kind of see if they come to Greenville and visit the museum, what else they can do in the town? The, the site of his liquor store. It's no longer a liquor store, but that building still exists. There's a plaque outside the front door that says this used to be Joe's store. You can go visit that. The Brandon Mill, where Joe first started playing baseball. The mill is still there. There are luxury apartments now, but the building is still there. And right next to the building is the ball field where he first played ball. So we play, you know, like I mentioned earlier in the interview about the vintage baseball game that I play every year against the Ty Cobb Museum. When the game is in Greenville, we play at the Brandon Mill ball field. It's called Shoeless Joe Jackson Memorial Park now, but it's the ball field that was next to Brandon Mill. It's where the, the mill players played. It's a really special place that one of the reasons why that event that I just happened to get down for captured my attention so quickly and, and so you know strongly was it was just a perfect, perfect day. You know? uh, we played on the field where Joe played and played with and against people who were related to him. It was uh, it was it was just awesome. So those are the types of things you can see in Greenville. And you know, if you come visit the museum, of course, we're going to tell you more about them and and give you the addresses and you know let you go on a scavenger hunt all over town but yeah there's still things that we're trying to do one of the things that we're hoping in the you know next few years when we get the the budget to start doing these things is to renovate some of those ball fields because the Brandon Mill field is great and in great shape but we want to restore it to its original orientation right now center field is where home plate was and vice versa but we want back what it was really like when Joe played there and there's a couple other fields like the Woodside Mill Field that I mentioned in 37 when he played there. It's a ball field still, but it's kind of in disrepair. So to renovate those or put plaques up to say, hey, some history happened here. And whether it's Joe Jackson or not, you know, these these textile league teams played at those fields and there's rich history that, that took place on those ball fields. So those are the types of things we want to do in this town and, and really remind people that this is a place to be proud of. Uh, you know, if you're from Greenville, you should be proud of being from here. And and we want to get those stories told and preserve that history. Yeah. I think as we wrap up here, what are some other artifacts that people will see if they come to the museum? What else do you have from Joe and his life? Well, one of our disadvantages as a museum is the fact from Joe's life career that are authentic are either at the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown or they're in private collections worth literally hundreds of thousands of dollars. So we don't have too many artifacts that actually belong to Joe and Katie. Uh, we have Katie's hope chest. We're happy to have that. She gave that to her next door neighbor. And then the, the neighbor gave it to her granddaughter. And then the granddaughter donated it back to us. So that's a piece that we have that really belongs to them. We've got a few pieces from their actual China pattern. Um, so we've got some dishes that they used. Uh, we've got original seats from Shide Park in Philadelphia. So we do have some, some things, but 
we're always looking for more. So if, if people have you know, period appropriate items or if the guy who owns Black Betsy just happens to come across this interview and wants to loan it either temporarily or permanently, uh, we'd love to talk. So yeah, we're, we're always trying to grow our collection, but that's that's been a struggle off the bat is uh, you know, the, the pieces that are out there are either outside of our price range or not authentic. So we're, we're trying our best to make the museum a, a place that's worth coming to visit even though we don't have a ton of artifacts, what, we, what we've done instead is we've worked with Man Cave Pictures. They're a, a company based out of Fredericksburg, Virginia, who repairs and restores old black and white photos. And then they have the ability to colorize them as well. So the images in our museum are just incredible. Uh, we've spent eight months pouring over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of photos together, deciding what images we wanted to display, uh, which ones we should colorize, how big they're going to be, what walls they're going to be on. I mean, we spared no uh, details. I mean, it's, it's the layout of the museum is truly something that we're proud of. So we hope that people come visit and feel the same way after they leave, but check out Man Cave Pictures because they do incredible work. Yeah, that's awesome that you're able to tell that story pictorially and have it colorized even. And I think that really probably brings it to life. So last question before I ask you to talk about the website, why is he named Shoeless Joe? I know a lot of baseball fans know this, but where did the nickname come from? Yeah, so uh, we have a researcher who is a docent here named Mike Miller. When Mike started volunteering, he didn't know too much about Joe and wanted to really learn the history, figure out who is this guy I'm giving tours about. So he started digging into the box scores of every game that Joe played in his entire career. He found out the exact day that he got this nickname. Um, it's June 6, 1908. The game was here in Greenville. They're playing a team from the town next to us called Anderson. The team was called the Anderson Electricians. Anderson was one of the first towns with electricity, so they were known as the Electric City. So their team was called the Electrician. That's cool. The Greenville Spinners, which was a team Joe was on, was playing. And Joe knew at the end of the season he's going to get called up to the majors, so he gets a new pair of cleats because when he gets up, he wants to look like he belongs. So the fifth inning of the Game on June 6, 1908, he's starting to get blisters on his feet. He's wearing this brand new pair of leather cleats from 1908. You know, they weren't broken in yet. So they start wearing blisters on his feet. And he asks his manager if he could sit out the rest of the game. The manager's like, no, you're my best player. I need you out there. So Joe took his shoes off and played the rest of the game in just his socks. And nobody noticed until the bottom of the seventh inning. Joe comes up to the plate with, uh, you know, his team is down one. And he hits the longest home run in the history of the stadium. As he's rounding third base, one of the Anderson fans was sitting on the third base side, saw Joe wasn't wearing shoes and stood up and yelled, you shoeless son of a gun. There was a newspaper writer in the stands who heard that, put it in the paper the next day. And within two weeks, every newspaper in the country had picked up this story about the shoeless wonder from South Carolina, who, you know, they made it out like he played every game barefoot and he's running out in the outfield grass among broken glass bottles. And how's he doing? Superstar. There were four innings in the guy's entire life that he didn't wear shoes. He just did something incredible during those four innings, but the name stuck. And Joe hated that nickname because he knew the connotation. He knew it made him sound like he was some uneducated fool from South Carolina who couldn't afford shoes. And it was the opposite. I mean, he just bought a new pair of shoes because he's going to the majors in two months. So for the rest of his life, he dressed very nicely off the field. He wore suits all the time. He drove big, nice cars. He liked to wear nice hats, nice shoes. You know, nice fur coats. We've got an image of him from spring training in Cleveland one year where he's got this big fur coat on. I mean, that's how he liked to dress because he wanted to show people not only did he have money, but he knew how to spend it. 
because he didn't want people to think of him as shoeless Joe. He wanted to be Joe Jackson. That's awesome, Dan. This has been such a fun interview. A lot of baseball history that I've learned and that our listeners are going to learn too. So I definitely appreciate your time. And And can you talk about where you could find the Shoeless Joe Jackson Museum, either online or in person? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me, by the way. So this past year, while we were closed with the pandemic, I completely rebuilt our website and instituted a membership program for the first time in history. So if you want to become a member, you can do that on our website. It's shoelessjoejackson.org. We're also on all the social media channels. So Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we're at Shoeless Museum on all those pages. So find us, follow us. We're closing in on 7,000 Twitter followers right now. We always do stuff like that. As we're approaching new milestones on all the platforms, we'll do giveaway contests where if you're following us, you have a chance to win a free membership. So there's some little incentive for people. But uh, if you want to just purchase membership and help support us, you can do that on our website and we'll be very grateful for that support. Yeah, I'll definitely link to those pages. And I, I used your website a lot in my preparation for this. It's very well done and very thorough with research and links to different articles. And I'll definitely link to those in our show notes for the episode. So thank you so much, Dan. This has been a ton of fun. I've learned a lot and I, um, I'm excited to maybe make it down to Greenville at some point and, and see the Shoeless Joe Jackson Museum. So I think it's a, a lot of a lot of fun and um, you're a joy to talk to. So Thank you for your time tonight and just keep keeping Joe's memory alive. Thanks for having me. And yeah, anytime you're in Greenville, please stop by and say hello. If you're following us on social media and you come to me, please tell me so we can be friends. Don't tell me when you're walking out the door. Oh, by the way, I've been following you for a year. Like, please tell me when you walk in and we will be friends. Like, I promise you, I'm fun to talk to. So come visit us and, and let's, uh, let's talk baseball. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dan. I appreciate it. Thanks, Andrew. For this episode's overtime segment, I thought I'd feature a man Dan mentioned a few times while talking about the Black Sox scandal, White Sox owner Charles Comiskey. During his 55-year tenure in professional baseball, Charlie was a player, manager, executive, and owner. One of the things about the Shoeless Joe Museum I enjoy the most is its emphasis on the era Joe played in. Comiskey is definitely one of the most influential figures in that era, in Joe's career, and in all of baseball history. Charles Albert Comiskey was born in Chicago on August 15, 1859 to his mother Mary and his father John, an Irish immigrant and influential local politician. Charlie, like many kids of his bygone era, grew up playing baseball, a relatively new sport at the time, with his friends in local parks. And despite his father's objections, Charlie left home as a late teenager to pursue baseball. And while on a minor league team in Dubuque, Iowa, most accounts say Charlie changed how the position of first base was played. You see, in those days, most first basemen hugged the bag and stayed very close to first base, while Charlie played in the way you might see today, farther away from the base so he was able to cut off balls headed to right field. The St. Louis Browns of the Upstart American Association came calling for Charlie in 1882 and offered him a contract. By the next season, he was a 23-year-old player manager. He would win four straight pennants with the Browns from 1885 to 1888. Charlie wasn't an excellent hitter, but had a few seasons with outstanding numbers, specifically 1887 where he batted 335, stole 117 bases, and drove in 103 runs. Something I didn't know about Charlie until researching is that he was extremely integral in the creation of the American League with Ban Johnson, a newspaper editor. Comiskey and Johnson started the Western League in the 1890s to challenge the National League's monopoly and succeeded, eventually changing its name to the American League in 1901, reaching a national agreement with the National League, and playing the first World Series in 1903. Also during this time, Charlie moved the Western League St. Paul franchise to Chicago and named it the White Sox. These are the same White Sox as today. His most lasting legacy was the first Comiskey Park, which opened in 1910 and operated as the White Sox Stadium through the 1990 season. 
And as Dan stated, Charlie may have known about the Black Sox scandal before it began, but he certainly knew about it after it occurred and didn't do anything. The acquittal of the eight men and subsequent banishment from baseball devastated the White Sox, who didn't finish in first place for the rest of Charlie's life. Charles Comiskey passed away from heart complications in 1931 at the age of 72. Eight years later, Charlie was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. What a fascinating baseball life. You can find the Shoeless Joe Jackson Museum and Baseball Library online at shoelessjoejackson.org or in Greenville, South Carolina, right across from Floor Field, the home of the single-A Greenville Drive. Look in this episode's show notes for the museum's website and social media pages, plus more information on the Black Sox scandal and Charles Comiskey. Thanks to Dan for such a fun interview. I hope you enjoyed episode 11 of Hallowed Ground, the Sports Museum podcast. Be sure to engage with the pod on social media, at Hallowed Ground Pod on Instagram and at HGPod on Twitter. I'll see you next time, sports fans.